even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and, be and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And that's God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the great privilege of uh, being up here to uh, proclaim you and remind these dear ones that you are, you are the only way to the Father. You are our only true hope. You are our only source of true and lasting happiness. God, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not consider equality with God something to be hung on to, but that you did, in fact, empty yourself. You became a servant. You were born in likeness of men. You became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And God, I thank you that the reality of what we're going to talk about today was done for each of us here that you came to serve us in eternal ways. And God, you know my heart. You also know that I'm just um, almost shaky, nervous this morning. And I don't know why. But I do know, God, that, that your word is living and it's active. And, that will, uh, and I pray that it will accomplish your good purposes this morning. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd be um, active in the hearts of believers this morning. That you bring encouragement to us by the proclamation of your word. And God, I pray that you would also convict us with the power of your word. Lord, we know that condemnation comes from the enemy, the deceiver. And we know that Conviction comes from the Spirit, and I pray, God, that in areas that, that you choose to convict us, I pray that our hearts would be soft and that we would joyfully receive that conviction. And in that conviction, we would be reminded that, that there's forgiveness and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that whatever you convict us of, you've given us the power to change, to make changes. And I just thank you, God, that it's all peaceable, that you're never shaking your finger at us that you've always got open arms, ready to receive us, whether we're obeying in perfection or whether we are uh, living in different degrees of sinfulness. So God, I just pray that you would uh, enable me, um, your um, helpless servant this morning, to proclaim your word. And I pray, God, that you would have your will in each of our lives here today. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. Good to see you all. We, uh, Nancy and I were able to get away for a little um, vacation, and which was really great. So it's, it's good to be back with church family, though. It's always good to be here with you all. Um, today, I mean, I really am, um, as I confess to the Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. And the reason that I'm nervous is that, um, that I was just telling Nancy, I mean, that 
It's been a long time since I've um, cried reading the scriptures, or I've cried in preaching. And, um, and, I, and I feel like in many ways it's, it's um, you know, that I've, I've just kind of um, got into the rhythm of being a Christian and being a pastor and just, um, just becoming too familiar with the great truths of the cross of Christ. And um, one of my uh, passions for myself, for the PLI guys when I talk to them, is that my prayer is that God's word would master us in greater ways than we're able to master the word. That, that God's word is true, whether um, the one proclaiming it is living it or not. But there's something about the proclamation of truth from a man that has been convicted by it and wants to live it out. And there's a sense where, like, where I've, been, I've been meditating. Wow. Thanks, Lord. I've been meditating on this passage for weeks, and it's, it's speaking to me. It's, it's speaking directly to the pride in my heart. But there's been a, a sense where I haven't been able to uh, release or have full conviction or even an understanding how, how to let it go. So, so this message this morning is as much for me, if not more for me, than it is for you. But I also know the heart of humanity that God describes in his word. And I know the struggle that we each have. So I pray that God would do his, his thing in us today. We are in... Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, this great hymn, this great poem that Paul inserts right in the middle of this letter to the church in Philippi. And I've titled this sermon, Christ's Example of Humble Service. Christ's Example of Humble Service. And as I was um, looking for definitions of humility, I think the best one I've found is by C.S. Lewis. And he said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. In fact, there, you, could be, you could think so little of yourself that you are the most prideful human being on the planet. It's actually thinking of yourself less and thinking of God and others more. You know, I can relate in my flesh with a great country song that says, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. Nancy highlighted that. To know me is to love me. I must be a heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. That describes humanity. That, that we, we see ourselves. We don't see our sin. We, see, um, um, we, we don't stop and pause and ask God to examine us because we're not humble. In C.S. Lewis's novel, The Screwtape Letters, we get a glimpse of what Uncle Screwtape has said to his junior devil, Wormwood. This is a picture of Satan talking to his demons. Satan with the name of Screwtape, Uncle Screwtape, and his demons with the name of Junior Devil. Junior Devil Wormwood, excuse me. And he talks to them about the devilish strategy that they have for influencing the Christian patient. And here's the scene that's going on behind closed doors as they talk about you and me. And they say, your patient, the Christian, has become humble. You have, drawn his have you drawn his attention to this fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at that moment when he is really poor in spirit 
and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jovi, I am humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride in his own humility will appear. If he awakens to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on. Through as many stages as you please. But don't, don't try to do this too long, Wormwood. For fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. But he goes on to say, but there, are, but there are other profitable ways of fixing his attention on the virtue of humility. By this virtue, as by all others, our enemy wants to turn the man's attention away from self to him. The, who's the enemy of, of devil? The enemy is God. It says, by this virtue, as by all others, our enemy, God, wants to turn the man's attention away from self to him and to his man's neighbors. All the objection and self-hatred are designed in the long run solely for this end. That's all the devil wants to do. If the devil can keep our attention, your attention, my attention on me and your attention on you, and off of God and off of one another, he is one. The victory is his. Let me ask you a few questions. How do you know if you're humble? Or how do you know if you're not humble? How do you know? Here's some maybe questions to ask. Do you think of others as more significant than yourselves? Do you worry about what other people think of you? You know, actually, um, shyness and um, fear of people is, is one of the greatest forms of pride. Because we're, we're focusing more on ourselves and what people think of us. Do you compare yourself to others? Here's another question. Are you willing to serve others even when they're undeserving? Even when they treat you like a servant? Are you concerned more about your happiness than you are for the happiness of others? If humility is self-forgetfulness, how are we to remember to forget ourselves? You don't have to answer this. But how often, when you walk by a mirror, do you walk by like that? Is asking what Jesus, what would Jesus do the right question? Is we're trying to be more humble, is that the right question? What would Jesus do? Remember the bracelets? I used to really hate those. The, the right question should be, should be, what did Jesus do? Not what would Jesus do, what did Jesus do? It's his, his life showed humility, but the cross humbles us. The secret to humility, I'm going to give it right to you up front, is never to stray far from the cross. The cross should be often in our thoughts, on our lips, in our songs, the cross should determine our actions. The cross should shape our attitudes. The cross should captivate our affections. The cross, gazing at the cross, is where lasting humility is found. I listened to both Chris's and Pat's sermons. I was so encouraged. I was so spurred on. I was so filled up. In the, the review, what this letter is all about is Paul is writing to the church, the church that he loves. The church is not in trouble. Paul's not wagging his finger at them. It's a church very much like ours, where there's, where there's good community going on, that people are growing at different levels in their spiritual walk. 
that people are coming to Christ, even though we'd love to see more of that. But it's a letter of encouragement. And Paul tells them right up front in chapter 1, he calls them saints. He reminds them that you are saints. First and foremost, your identity is that you are a saint, that you've been set apart by God. He affirms them, that he tells them and reminds them, encourages them that, that God who began a good work in you will complete that good work. He reminds them and encourages them that they are partakers of God's grace with him. Yet being a part of God's kingdom, being a part of God's family, saved from the guilt and penalty and power of sin, is not an invitation to hit the spiritual brakes. And we see that so much in America. That people get saved, they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and they go on and live in any way they see fit. The reason that the divorce rate is so high, the reason that there are church splits, the reason that there are enemies in the church of Christ, big C, is because of a lack of Christ's humility. That's the bottom line. So we're not to put the spiritual brakes on. Being in Christ is an invitation to work out our salvation. To live our ways in humble submission to the Lord and to one another. You know, we're going to see today this crazy thing. We, we were just in Mexico, Nancy and Mexico. And, um, and I got to tell you, if you want to have coffee sometime, and um, like if, if you've got issues going on in your life and, and in your marriage, and you're like, you're saying what Paul's saying, why do I keep doing the same things? Why, why am I doing the things I don't want to do? And why can't I do the things that I do want to do? It was like my story in Mexico. It was like we were like one of the most beautiful places around, and I was walking and living in perpetual pride. But we were in Mexico, and, I, and I, on, the, on the back of one of these buses, it was, a, it was some kind of resort, and it said, come to our resort and find true happiness. And there was, a, there was a part of me just being in Cancun where I was sickened, actually. I was sickened by the opulence. Did I enjoy myself? Yeah, we enjoyed ourselves. Will I go back again? Yeah, I'll probably go back again. But, but you know, the, the weather and the sand and the crystal blue water isn't enough. We've got to have Las Vegas shows now in Cancun. We've got to have theme parks in Cancun. It's like, like wh where do we stop in our attempt for, to, to achieve happiness? Where do we stop for that? But today, we're actually going to talk about how um, humility, a living in humble servitude towards other people, actually brings blessing and happiness that we can never imagine. In this poem or hymn, Paul beautifully illustrates Christ's own servant-hearted humility as a humbling reminder of what God did to bring us into his family. But he doesn't stop there. This reminder is also the power and the pattern to follow in the life of the, of the church in relationship with one another. It's not just the, the gospel didn't just save us. It's a pattern for the way we're to live. And we don't talk about that enough. So after affirming God's saving work in them, he gives further encouragement on living in unity with others, especially other believers in the church. John covered uh, chapters uh, 2, verses 1 through 5. It talked all about unity. It talked about how we're to live in unity. Now, Paul's going to get even more practical now. In verse 5, he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind? Have this mind. What mind, Paul? the one-mindedness that he describes in verses 2 through 4. He, he 
He encourages the Philippian church to have one mind, verse 2, to be united by love, verse 2, to have humility towards one another, verse 3, to do nothing from selfishness or conceit, verse 3, and looking out for the interests of others, verse 4, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And there's some debate amongst theologians, actually, is this mind something that we have because we are in Christ, we're united with Christ, or is this a mind we're to have in modeling it after Christ? And the answer is yes, it's both that we have no power to follow the pattern of Christ without being in Christ. In fact, it's nothing more than moralism to encourage somebody to follow the way of Christ if they're not united in Christ um, by faith in Christ. So let's just dig into verses 6 through 11. Verses 5 through 8 talk about the humility of Jesus, and verses 9 through 11 talk about the exaltation of Jesus. And i got to tell you, there's a myriad of theological questions that we can debate and spend time on up here. There's a myriad of, uh, of them. But it's critical, and I want to encourage you to keep one thing in mind, that these verses, like all of God's Word, were written not to spur on theological debates, but to encourage greater humility and love and service towards one another. That's the purpose of these verses, is that we would be spurred on to love God and love others. We'd be encouraged in new and fresh ways. Paul says in verse 5, Have this mind among you, church, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And I've quoted this verse, I've prayed this verse um, hundreds of times, and I don't think I've ever, um, in all that, had a right understanding of this verse. And uh, and my suspicion is that many of you have have not. Verse 6, the word form who though he was in the form of God, the word form here means the true and exact nature of something. It means that it possesses all the characteristics and qualities of something. I can tell you one thing, that that, uh, margin is not butter. Um, We were sitting at the resort at the table there, and there's there's these butters there, and I put it in my coffee. What's my little bulletproof coffee? And that thing like stuck there and floated and wouldn't melt, and I tried to, had it stuck in my throat. Um, so, so form here is, is the exact imprint. It's not, it's not a replicate. Jesus didn't have some godlike qualities or appearance. He was and is God. He's not just saying that God, that Jesus um, had the form, he had the qualities, he had the appearance. No, he was God. And there's many passages in Scripture that demonstrate that Jesus was fully and completely God. And this is important to understand. In John chapter 1, John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1 verse 3, the author says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by His Word, by the Word of His power. You see, being in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God's something to be grasped. What that means is, is that it wasn't something that he needed to um, attain or reach for. He was already God. He was fully God. He was always God, and he was fully God when he took the form of God, and he will be God forever. Equality with God was already his, and that's what it means that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had every right to stay comfortably 
where he was in a position of power and glory. But it was his love for you, it was his love for me that drove him to a position of weakness for the sake of sinful mankind. Paul writes that Christ emptied himself. And this doesn't mean that Christ emptied himself of divinity, of his divine attributes. He didn't empty himself of being God. In emptying himself, Jesus humbly set aside all of his divine privileges. This has direct application for us, by the way, in the way that we treat other people. He humbly set aside all of his divine privileges that were rightfully his in order to become a man and suffer in our place. He was no less God by emptying himself. He did not empty himself of being God. I want to emphasize that as much as I can. But he emptied himself of all the rights and privileges of being God. Are you with me on this? Are you with me on this? He emptied himself of not his divine attributes, but, he, he, uh, but of, his, of his rights and his privileges of being God. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, um, does a good job of, of uh, summarizing this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that we who are poor might become what? Rich. In humility, he counted sinful and rebellious humanity's interests as more important or more significant than, than, than his own. Verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ took on the form of a servant. He adopted the appearance and being of a servant. Christ did not exchange the form of God for the form of a servant. This is really important here. That Christ, that's a characteristic of who Christ is. That he already was a humble servant. Even if he stayed in heaven, by coming to earth did not make him a servant. It manifests his servanthood, if you will. But he was already in the form of servant before he came down. In emptying himself, let's see where we at here. Christ never became humble because he was humble. He is the beginning and the end of humble servitude. And it says that he was born in the likeness of men. This further defines his emptying. It describes his full identity with the human race. He fully participated in our human experience. Everything that you experience in life, he experienced and more. Jesus, except for sin. Jesus was truly man, but not merely man. And beyond that, his humility in the incarnation is a thing of great wonder. He was born in the likeness of men. And he was found in human form. Jesus, who was and is God, has no beginning or end to his deity. On the other hand, Jesus became a man. He took on the form and likeness of a man. Jesus had a human birth and a human genealogy. Jesus experienced temptation just like you and I experienced temptation. Jesus had a body and experienced growth. And he had physical susceptibilities like hunger and thirst and tiredness and, of course, death. He humbled himself by being born a man and entering into a fallen world to rescue his helpless and hopeless creation. He jumped from the comforts of heaven and the privileges of heaven into the darkness of this world. In verse 8, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of Jesus' humanity, he could be an appropriate substitution for us. He could be what Bible, the Bible calls our propitiation. If he were not fully man, there would be no satisfactory payment for our sin. 
The belief that Jesus is one person with both divine and human natures has great significance for the possibility of people, uh, of fallen people entering into a relationship with God. Christ must be both God and man if he is to mediate between God and man, if he is to make atonement for our sin. He is the sympathetic high priest. Colossians 1 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ. You see, this, this verse presents the profound ministry of the eternal, infinite Son of God, stepping into time and space and taking on human nature, our nature. There's no greater thought that can be pondered than this. Verse 8 tells us that the God-man humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Interesting words, isn't it? That he humbled himself to the point of death. Why not just stop there? If it wasn't enough for him to come and to be born in the likeness of man, to live the perfect life knowing that he was going to die, it says that even death on a cross. And that's significant there because the cross was the worst kind of humiliation that you could experience in that day, in that first century. That first century. It, had, it came with excruciating physical pain and was magnified by, de by degradation and humiliation. No other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of a person. The cross was reserved for the worst of criminals. And those who hung were hung publicly. They were stripped naked for all to see and cast insults until the guilty one's final breath. That's, that, that's the death that Jesus died. It wasn't enough for him just to come and die, but he came and was humiliated so that you and I in Christ will never be Humiliated. In fact, we will be vindicated of every harm against us in this broken world. This was the ultimate counterpoint to the divine majesty of the pre-existent Christ. And, this, and thus was the ultimate expression of Christ's obedience to the Father and His love for you and I. Jesus' life teaches humility. The cross of Christ should humble us. We're not only saved by faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross, he's, it's our example. Paul told the church to have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. In a real sense, though, we have already died with Christ. Romans 6 tells us that we have died with Christ. We've, we've died with Him, we've been buried with Him, we've been raised with Him. By faith, we have been made new. The old has gone and the new has come. This is what Andrew Murray wrote about this talking about the death to self, actually. The death to self is not your work. It's God's work. In Christ, you are dead to sin, Romans 6. The life there is in you has gone through the process of death and resurrection. That believer, you are united with Christ. That if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are dead to sin. Sin has no power over you. And you have been raised with Christ. But the full manifestation of the power of this death in your disposition and conduct depends on the measure in which the Holy Spirit imparts the power of the death of Christ. 
And it is here that the teaching is needed. If you want to enter into full fellowship with Christ in his death and know the full deliverance from self, humble yourself. That is your one duty. We talk a lot about the cross of Christ here. We remind you often about your identity in Christ, and it is of supreme importance. But if we're continually reminding you of our identity in Christ, which we will, without encouraging you to follow the pattern of Christ, it makes a mockery of the gospel. It makes a mockery of the gospel when we embrace the truth of the gospel, but we don't live the truth of the gospel. Many times throughout a day, we're, giving, we're given, in Amy Carmichael's words, a chance to die. In Mexico, I had, I had eight days with probably 100 chances to die. But I chose to preserve my rights. I chose to, um, to seek to be understood rather than to seek to understand. There's many times throughout every day where we're given a chance to die, to die to our lusts, to, lie, to die to our demands, our desires, our perceived rights and expectations. The ultimate proof of Jesus' humble surrender and submission to the Lord was through death. So it is with us too. Humility must lead us to die to self. It has nothing to do with your salvation. It has nothing to do with who you already are in Christ. But it has everything to do with glorifying God and edifying the church. It has everything to do with mission. Is there a worse testimony than brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it be in the home or in the church, that are walking in pride, not humility, that are seeing their own interests as more important than other people's interests? We see in verses 9 through 11 that Paul explains one major outcome of Christ's humble suffering and death. God highly exalted him through the resurrection and later in his ascension. Jesus' self-emptying, humble obedience and sacrificial death were vindicated by God. And I will tell you that no matter what you're going through, no matter, it's, no matter how hard the marriage is, now, no matter how hard your relationships are, that first of all, that, that I'm going to remind you in a minute, that, that God sees and God cares. And whatever pain you're experiencing, whether it be physical, emotional pain, that you will be vindicated. That you will be vindicated one day. The passage reads this, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him. Therefore God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is good news on many fronts. The exaltation of Christ began when he left his grave clothes in the tomb. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of God is symbolic, is a symbolic place of power, honor, distinction, and prestige. From this place he continues, Jesus continues. He isn't, he isn't sitting in his throne taking a rest. He is busy sanctifying us, making us more, look more like him, and he is still busy saving people. He continues his saving work on earth. He continues a vital act of ministry as he reigns all over all creation. As a result of his victorious exaltation, 
Sin, Satan, and death were decisively defeated. Know that, believer. That, that death has no grip on you. That sin has no power over you. That Satan can't make you do it. As a result of his victorious exaltation, he will always represent you before the throne of God as your mediator, as your intercessor, and as an advocate for your needs. As a result of his victorious exaltation, you can be sure that Jesus' unique resurrection leads the way for everlasting resurrection for you. Where one day you will see a human face, yes, human face, that is scarred. In his hands and feet. A human face and nail-scarred hands and feet. That will greet us one day. As a result of his victorious exaltation, he has prepared a place for you. As a result of his victorious exaltation, the Holy Spirit was unable to come. If he had not ascended into heaven, we would never have the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that, that having the Holy Spirit is better than having him. And can I just... Um, can I have you all just for a minute just breathe in through your nose deeply? Come on. Breathe. This isn't meditating. Exhale. Because we're going to be in here about 10 minutes extra. Um, this passage is too important and we got a late start. So we're going to finish up. So I just want you all just to relax. Uh, pretend like you are, um, I don't know. I won't go any further than that. Because of the fact that Jesus was highly exalted, the Christian has great hope that generates confidence in all circumstances. The resurrection and the ascension is not merely a doctrine to be affirmed intellectually. It is a great source of comfort and encouragement for all believers throughout all times because it is the resounding affirmation that Jesus reigns over everything and the power that raised him from the dead is the Christian's power to live a humble Christian life of servitude on earth and the assurance of eternal life in heaven. Without the Holy Spirit, we would never be able to live out humble servitude. We would have no chance of living this out. That's victory. Every, you know, I know that God's working when a baby cries. And I love that when a baby cries. Don't you ever leave with that baby. One day we will once again, one day he will once again leave his throne though. He will leave his throne at that time. And at, and at that time, the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Someday Christ will return in great glory and there will be a definitive, comprehensive acknowledgement that he is Lord over all. He will then judge the living and the dead and that every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Those that have put their faith in him and those who, um, who died and have an eternal separation from him. That every tongue, whether above or below, is going to acknowledge and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is a missions verse. And we're going to talk about this next week. Is Paul? Uh, Paul's end is not just um, us humbly serving one another. Paul's end is that God be glorified through mission. That God be glorified by drawing, drawing people to himself. Jesus' humility in serving us set us forever free from the guilt, power, and penalty of sin. Jesus' humility is serving us Jesus' humility in serving us has also given us a pattern to follow that glorifies God, builds up the church, as I already said, reaches the loss, and brings blessings to you and I who follow that pattern. 
If you, if you use your Bibles, um, open up to John 13. John chapter 13, verse 1. Here in John chapter 13, we see Jesus giving an example of humble service. We see it in him washing the disciples' feet. He was giving a powerful illustration in John 13 of what Paul is describing in today's passage. What we see in this passage is a drama that sets forth the hour had arrived that he, Jesus, had come from God and the hour had come that he was going to return to God. As John's gospel relates the account of what happened behind these closed doors on this Passover, the disciples were reclining at the table and they, were sh- they had shamefully dirty feet stretching out behind them. And they became aware that the teacher had risen from supper and was standing apart from them. As they watched, he removed his outer garment. Next, he took a towel and he wrapped it around his body. And then he poured water into the basin and began slowly to move around the circle, one disciple at a time. And as far as we know, he also washed Judas Iscariot's feet the one that he knew would betray him. Wiping them with the towel with which he was wrapped. Let me read this passage. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Jesus, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, verse 4, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He got up from the meal in the same way that he emptied himself and rose from his rightful throne. He took off his outer garment in the same way he laid aside his eternal glory. He wrapped a towel around his waist, a servant's towel, in the same way that he emptied himself. And became a servant. He poured water into the basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. God incarnate. And he did this in the same way that he humbled himself. And became obedient to death. Even death on the cross. Then in verse 12. When he had washed their feet. And put on his outer garment. Put it back on. And he resumed his place at the table. He did this in the same way that when his humble work was done on earth, he ascended to his rightful throne at the right hand of the Father. And in verse 12b, he says this to them after he's washed their feet. Do you understand what I've done to you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, for so I am. If then, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Don't miss this, verse 17, if you know these things. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do what? Serve one another. Jesus came to serve us in our imperfections, in our sin and rebelliousness. A servant serves even when others are not deserving of being served. A servant serves even when others treat you like a servant. Blessed are you if you do them. Blessed literally means happy. We are spending our entire lives chasing happiness. Look at your checkbooks. Look at your calendar. God's given us good things to enjoy. But if we're chasing those good things that he gave us to enjoy to find lasting happiness or ultimate happiness, you're going down the wrong road. Lasting happiness is, is, is setting aside our garment of glory and walking through life with a servant's apron on 24-7, looking for ways that we can honor and glorify God who has got his garments of glory on because to him belongs all the glory and praise and honor. And here we are his humble servants doing his work until he returns again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. I trust, Spirit, that um, in spite of uh, length, in spite of uh, uh, my varying inabilities, God, that you are greater and that you're at work. And God, I pray that uh, I'm just grateful that um, not only that you would save me and save us, but that because of your exaltation, that we have your spirit that gives us the power to actually live out what you're asking us to live out. And I thank you also that what you're calling us to do, to live lives of humble servitude, doesn't earn us anything. but it gives us the motivation because of everything that we've already received in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.